This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1. This is the evolution of intimacy with Ella Shannon. A show about sex, relationships and everything in between. You can start to feel bliss while you're vacuuming. I don't know if I've tried that or not. Do I want to try it? What is it? Very complex, very interesting. Flogging, whipping, caning. So there I was in my high heels and my little dress. So it is purely a stigma. Healthy sexual expression with other humans. I went to the local women's health centre and went, I think I'm a lesbian, is there a support group? They don't know quite how to talk about it. It's actually a core skill in relationships. That has always worked for me. My guest today is Chris Pye. He's a relationship counsellor based in Queensland. And we're going to talk about attachment injuries. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks, Ella. You're welcome. And we actually met quite a few years ago when you created the Rainbow Rep program as well. So I have a very um, fond memory of your enthusiasm and just, yeah, what you created. Yeah, that was an awesome period. (laughs) Very cool. Chris, what's an attachment injury? This is a term as as therapists we understand, but it's not a common parlance. Can you talk a bit about what what this is? Yeah, of course. Um, Look, even before birth, when our thinking brain, our frontal brain isn't even yet formed and our emotional brain, our limbic brain brain is, is beginning to form attachments with, with our, our, our caregiver, our mother generally in the, in the womb. And we're just starting even then to start to soak up sensory information and build attachment. And then from birth and for the next really six or seven years, we're locked into this process of attachment and learning with our primary caregiver and we study everything every facial expression every sound every breath and every heartbeat because really as an evolutionary animal on an animal level we're completely reliant on that first attachment figure like i said usually our Mm -hmm. mother for our our very survival and so that connection that bond is is critical And, and when our primary attachment figure is accessible and responsive to us then we we feel safe in the world. And, and when our caregiver leaves our side for, for a while, we might become distressed, but then they return and we're comforted and, and we build a tolerance some distance as well as closeness. We overall learn that intimate relationship is a safe place. But, but conversely, if the caregiving we receive is inconsistent or inaccessible or unresponsive, or even if it's neglectful or, or abusive, then our brain builds a, a really different map of intimate relationship. And we learn that we're not necessarily safe in relationship. And then we adapt to that quite masterfully by engaging in behaviors and ways of being in relationship that help us survive those tricky and dangerous situations. And we might become aloof and detached, or we might become clingy and crave attention. And often these behaviors in relationships as adults are informed by those early attachment journeys Hmm. so we're sort of set up for the way we're going to respond with our adult partners from that first relationship yeah so there's a lot that gets locked in you know in those first you know really in infancy but really in those first six or seven years a lot of those neural 
pathways and connections around what relationship is for us and how we behave within the intimate relationship does does get kind of formed and, and locked in to some degree. And, you know, just so many of us humans haven't necessarily had great experiences with parents, not necessarily that parents didn't love them, but for whatever reason was going on in their lives, couldn't really offer that level of connection and care that you described. So what can we do about it? Is this like we're just set up for this for life or is it possible to unlearn some of these reactions for your adult relationships? Well, there's heaps we can do, and I think what happens is the default is that the way we behave and and react to emotional situations and emotionally challenging situations is is just the way we react. We don't necessarily question it; it's just it's just who we are, and we sometimes assume that's way that's the way that everybody is. And so, what we can do is to start with is we can start to bring our awareness to the way we behave and the way we feel and the way our body responds in times of emotional stress. And so often with that, the help of a counsellor, but, not, you know, we can do this all kinds of ways. And there are great, there's great technology and apps and things like this these days that people can use to start to just get in touch with their bodies and start to feel just those really fundamental things about when you, when you start to feel stressed or worried with, with your partner or an intimate other. Where are you feeling it? Is it a knotted stomach? Is it sweaty palms? Is it racing thoughts? What's going on for you? And just by starting to build that awareness about how we are in difficult emotional situations, we start to develop agency and we start to develop the ability to make that implicit stuff explicit so we can make choices, conscious choices with our frontal brain, with Mm. the cognitive parts of our brain about what we do with that stuff. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, relationships and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec, I'm a woman, like I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been attracted to myself. (laughs) So they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. Mind-blowing. So it's going to come up, these sort of patterns are ingrained in us, it's going to arise, but you're saying we can learn to pause and and choose how we respond and react to what's happening in the body and in the relationship. Yeah, that's it. So the more we build emotional literacy, the more we have agency to be able to make different choices and be able to talk to our partner about that. So you'll get these common patterns like a withdraw, pursuit, dynamic in a relationship where at times of emotional stress one person walks away and shuts down and the other person pursues because they need resolution Mm. and it's a really common pattern and and it runs over and over like a like a videotape without the partners necessarily going beneath the behaviors and going hey what's going on here what what is this pattern what's this about and the more each one 
does their thing, the pursuing or the running away, the harder the other person runs away or pursues and it really cycles on itself, doesn't it? Absolutely. So for parents listening, you know, there's a lot of responsibility and in what you sort of said initially around the impact that Mm -hmm. childhood can have throughout the life and that first early relationship. So if parents are listening and freaking out about damaging their kids, what would you say to that? I think that the number one, and I speak as a parent as well as a a practitioner, the number one is the repair is the critical thing, not Mm. necessarily the tear or the rupture, if you like. And Mm. as parents and in families, we're going to have little ruptures and and tears all over the place. And sometimes they're bigger and sometimes they're smaller, but we have these constant ruptures in our relationships. If we can be coming back to those ruptures to our children and repairing that's the bit that's important because then we learn that yes we have ups and downs we have problems we have emotional disturbance but relationship is safe because i know that my my attachment figure my intimate other whether it's my parent or my partner or my child we know we're going to come back and we're going to hug or we're going to say i love you or we're going to say i'm sorry whether we're the parent or the child you know i didn't i lost my temper and and i overreacted and and that's not great, but that happens sometimes when we're humans. And I'm, I'm sorry if that hurt you. Uh, that repair is so powerful. And mm. I think it's really good for parents to know that, you know, however big the tear. And, you know, this can be really huge. So it could be for kids who uh, are in care, who are taken, you know, away from their parents. There have been studies to show that kids uh, emotionally crave connection with their first attachment figure. So even when their parent has been abusive or neglectful, their physiological responses when they're in connection with their parent, when they're back reunified with a parent, can be really, really telling. They say that I want I want to be in proximity with mm. those people I love, even if even if the relationship isn't isn't great, you know, I, I want I want to be connected. Mm. It's such a deep need for us humans, isn't it, to connect with the people around us. And would you say that's similar in adult relationships, that the repair being so important as well? Absolutely. And so when I talk about things like a timeout technique, you know, which is where when, when conflict gets to a point where it's reached an agreed place of this is getting unhealthy we need to have a mechanism and we might call it time out it's used with kids but it can be used with adults as well where we we say okay when those words are used or that behavior is used or that physical gesture is used that we have to agree that that's a sign that this is no longer a healthy conflict and we must agree that one of us can call time out and we go away to our separate corners to do whatever we need to do to de-escalate and mm-hmm. feel calm again but the, the crucial part of the timeout strategy is that we will come back together again mm-hmm. within usually an agreed period of time to revisit and to reconnect mm-hmm. and, and to repair. And that can be really useful because without a timeout strategy, it can just be walking off, you know, which, which it can be really stressful oh, uh, for both parties. Yeah. Well, the walking off part's easier, I guess, for the person that's got more the withdrawal tendency, but the coming yeah. back is going to be very hard for that person. Yeah. So putting some some scaffold around mm. that with a timeout strategy and having some details around that that are agreed can, I think, you can just bring some real safety to those times when we do need to stop because it's mm. getting yucky, you know. Mm. You are listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with me, Alice Shannon, a show about sex, 
relationships, and everything in between. Most of us have not been encouraged or taught how to talk about sex. They are curious. Hang on a sec, I'm a woman, like, I have needs now. Whole new level of sensation and pleasure. I looked at my yoni before and after and I was like, oh my God. You may experience a range of emotions. What we associate as being related to one gender or another, it changes all the time. Pleasure is our birthright. You're on these massive doses of steroids. I look like Bert Newton. I wouldn't have been <laughs> attracted to myself. <laughs> so they were just so happy to know that A, they weren't alone, and B, that this was like a legitimate thing. And that actually sounds really lovely and erotic, really pleasurable. It's a secret. <laughs> Mind-blowing. What makes a good repair? Is it just sort of saying sorry or what's some of the elements that really feel like a repair, do you think? Mm, I think I think the big one is, is owning, is mm. owning our stuff, uh-huh. you know, and that can be really hard for parents because we, we can sometimes struggle with the idea of, of control and authority and and sometimes it can be hard to let go of that control and to be vulnerable and admit mistakes and wrongdoing to our to our children in the fear that we'll lose some control or authority. But that's a really big one to be able and, and you know this one that I've had to, to learn as a parent is to be able to say, Ah, oh, you know what, I got I got a bit triggered when that happened, this is what happened for me emotionally and that meant that I got loud and I yelled mm-hmm. and that wasn't great. That was me losing a bit of control. What I would like to have done is walked away and taken some breaths like I tell you to do. Nice. Um, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't manage it in that moment, and I'm sorry. You know? Yeah, And lovely. that's not always easy to do, but it's so important for our kids to know that we're not perfect because we don't want to set them up to try and be perfect in the world either. Well, that's right, and I think that's really reassuring to any parents listening that you actually don't have to get it perfect. You just have to be willing to own up when you when you stepped across that line yeah yeah not always easy no definitely (laughs) not someone told me even if you can just take one little peppercorn of responsibility it will diffuse the situation (laughs) yes yeah Mm. and i look i I think it's for me in in a way it's harder with my partner Mm. um i I think that stuff is in some ways more triggering i think people talk about kids being, being the ultimate triggers but i think for me being able to say sorry and admit my wrongdoing or my mistakes or my errors to my partner, I find that a little bit, a little bit difficult because I think I, I, I tend to be able to slot into a place with my kids of uh, I've got to be bigger, stronger, wiser. That's my role, to be mm. bigger, stronger, wiser. And part of being bigger, stronger, wiser is to model responsibility and vulnerability and emotional intelligence because I really want to model that for my kids. Mm. So, yeah, I almost go into a bit of a teacher role in in that respect and maybe Mm. as a a clinician with my husband it's a little bit trickier for me so I think we experience these in different ways in different relationships yeah you're a bit more vulnerable with him it's not you don't have that clinician hat on or dad hat on you yeah yeah, more raw I guess yeah yeah and Chris did you want to share anything about why this area of interest came about for you attachment injuries and trauma yeah, look, attachment theory has always been there for me as a, I've been a counsellor for many years and uh, I think attachment is a really interesting area, just where, you know, what happens for us as 
children as infants even before birth and how that informs. I think for me, my own experience as, as a queer person, which is how I identify it, just noting how it didn't feel safe in the world at the time when I was growing up in the 70s with mm. quite traditional parents and a community and an environment that wasn't open to that being spoken or, or being okay. Mm. That idea of the messages that I took from that of not being okay, not being of value, not being worthy, and the world not being a safe place for me, really helped for me to anchor the importance of of the core beliefs that we take and the importance of safe attachment. Mm. So that was that was a big part of the learning for me. And then I suppose my, my husband and I became adoptive parents six years ago and for two children who come from complex and developmental trauma. Mm. And so for me, again, that was another reason for me to, to need to really understand I guess some of the extreme ends of attachment injuries mm. uh, for children and and what that can do and, and you know we see the impact of that every single day in the behaviors of our of our children and it just reminds me of just how critical it is you know those those early years are and given that they didn't have secure and safe attachment as children we now have the task of helping them to learn how to recognize that and recognize the triggers and manage that so that they can, as adults, be able to form safe, secure, intimate attachments with romantic partners. And that's my big hope, is that they will be able to have successful relationships themselves. And that's going to take some work for them Mm. to get to that place. And, you know, as they get older, it's it's nice. Our oldest is 13 now, and we're Mm. able to start having conversations, you know, on a more of an intellectual level about some of these things. And Mm. whilst, you know, the the change doesn't happen on the cognitive level, it really is that animal brain, that limbic brain, that survival brain, where a lot of trauma and distress sits. But uh, being able to, on the cognitive level, understand the importance of being able to attend, uh, of needing to attend to that stuff Mm. uh, can, can be useful too. Yeah, like on top of the experience, to be able to give some words to it is really helpful, I imagine, for your your young person. Or 13, good luck, I hope it goes smoothly as possible. I was a terror (laughs) as a teenager, so. Chris. What about how it impacts on sexual relationships, thinking about Mm. attachment and injuries and trauma and things? Look, I think what's interesting for me is that, and this is something that obviously as relationship cats we talk talk about, Mm. and it's it's often a challenging thing, as you know, for couples to bring. And if you're not a sexologist or, or or specifically a sex therapist, then I think people have a lot of, yeah, a lot of resistance and, and, and anxiety about having those conversations. Yeah. And what I experience for a lot of people is that to step into that intimate space and be that vulnerable with our partner, we need to feel emotional safety. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the two come together for me is to help people understand where their relationship has become unsafe and where they feel unable to metaphorically stand naked in front of one another and feel completely exposed and vulnerable and okay with that Mm. and and when couples can't or an individual within a relationship can't do that it's really it's really hard to then step into that sexually intimate space and feel that they can really give themselves to one another so i see i see a lot of those sorts of Mm. negotiations yeah it's such a i don't know how that resonates with with your 
experience. Well, it's such a parallel, isn't it? You say metaphorically stand naked in front of someone yeah. and be seen, you know, to actually stand naked in front of someone and be seen. Yeah. If if you can't do one of those, it's, um, it's influencing there. And yes, I would very much agree. And you know, I think to talk about sexual intimacy where there's that real closeness and letting go. On the other side, for some people, they need to feel a sense of danger that's mixed up in their kind of uh, erotic mm-hmm. erotic themes and what turns them yeah. on. So it, it doesn't necessarily, yeah. n- not everyone needs safety to feel sexual, but certainly you need it to feel sexually intimate and connected, I would imagine. And it's interesting how some of this stuff is gendered. In, in my experience, right, yeah. is that I'll speak to heterosexual couples where it's possible for the male partner to still be sexually intimate, even if there's been conflict that's been unresolved or, mm. or that there's not necessarily a feeling of emotional safety for both in the relationship. And yet, and this is obviously a generalisation, it's not always this way, but for the female partner in that situation, it's really hard to then be physically vulnerable, sexually vulnerable when when there, when there is that sense of not being emotionally safe. And yeah. that's just a, a really interesting facet of, of our socialisation, I think, within mm. that binary huh. gender construct. It's fantastic to hear you talk about that, Chris, because I often explore that with the people I work with. And it's again and again being reinforced that it's there you know Mm. that the men it starts off at the gentles and then it comes up to the heart whereas for a lot of women it starts at the heart and then they can go down to the gentles and feel sexy but I sort of cringe talking in such gendered terms but Mm. you know we see it and like you said that is a product of socialization and culture and what it is to be a man and a woman you know um, as we sort of prescribe for people yeah it's very powerful and I think we're I, I really do think that all genders are done a disservice by mm. these really prescriptive narratives about what it is to be a man in relationship, what it is to be a woman in relationship, yeah. what it is to be a person in a sexual relationship. There's so much corsetry wrapped around these ideas of how we're supposed to be intimate with one another and it creates a lot of obstacles, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Often the challenge is just exactly that. You know, If you take away all those scripts and expectations there's not actually an issue anymore yeah mm. yeah and then when we add our attachment injuries mm. <laughs> on, on top of that that's really tough and and often we, we will see a partner who just really struggles with being able to be really emotionally open and mm. so sex can be a difficult negotiation when uh, one partner is really really experiencing sex as a connection and a conduit to emotional intimacy and being fully present and, and there with their partner and the other one might see it as just sexual sexual function and of mm-hmm. course we, we experience sex in lots of different ways each person at different times of the day different days of the week different mm-hmm. with different partners but but i often see one of the tensions that sits there with within couples is one person really seeing sex as a as a sacred mm-hmm. beautiful coming together of a spirit of, of emotions whilst the partner doesn't necessarily meet them in that place and that can be really hard and hurtful sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Or, you know, sex really being the only place where some people are able to actually mm. connect and that's, yeah. that's the only time that they kind of experience yeah. that or let themselves kind of experience that. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people are intrigued about what we've talked about and want to find you, where would they look you up? 
Oh, they could just go to my website at asinglestep.com.au. That's, that's my central hub. Happy to have chats with people and, uh, and conversations. So, yeah, you can look me up there. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much again. It's been fabulous to have a chat with you. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Evolution of Intimacy with Ella Shannon. We're feeling juicy the whole day. Every desire I could possibly think of. What sort of impact would it have? They want it, they're going to go and get it. They don't think of long-term consequences. Oh, did that feel really nice? Oh, yes, that felt really delicious. Being able to feel good about my body again, that's been a huge thing. All anybody really wants in this world is to feel seen and heard. We actually do have a lot that connects us physically. It's making people feel good. There is a real sense of hopefulness that returns in a relationship. A really beautiful thing. Take that beauty and that calmness and that bliss and that sense of peace out into the world. Thank you for listening and I hope we've inspired you with our juicy conversations on this episode of The Evolution of Intimacy. If you would like to go deeper, you can book a session of relationship counselling, sex therapy or individual counselling via my website. I work in person in Cairns, tropical far north Queensland, or I can meet you online anywhere in the world. Or you might prefer to go at your own pace with my 12-lesson Relationship and Intimacy online course. To book or to listen to previous episodes, visit my website, ellashannon.com or follow me on the socials at Evolution of Intimacy. Finally, please go to iTunes and write me a quick review if you're feeling kind. Thank you, lovelies, and see you next time. This podcast was produced and recorded in the studios of Cairns FM 89.1.